0: golf tournaments and he would get him he would make sure he got himself right in the tv shot Do you remember that and he, he held up a placard remember what it said john three sixteen, right i mean this is maybe you know the most uh famous passage and you know certainly all of american religious history and for any and all of us who came out of the evangelical church which i know all of us didn't uh, but for those of us who did certainly this was right at the core of what we thought about when we thought about Christianity or religion or spirituality or anything like that. So we happen to come to this passage in ordinary time this year as we are uh, studying through the Gospel of John. And it makes us, I think, sometimes think, do like we really need to talk about this again? <laughs> like, haven't we gone over this over and over and over again? Aren't we already converted? Aren't we already <laughs> born again? And actually, uh, I want to show you this morning that Nicodemus stands in this story as something that actually fits all of us all the time in our walks with Christ, and that's this. He would, of course, have been an expert in historic Judaism. I mean, he was a Pharisee, a teacher of the law, which means he was the strictest of kind of his kind, of his generation. So nobody would have had more of an intellectual insight into the Judaism of his day. Further... He had seen Jesus' signs. And so what he really stands as in this story is an example of someone who has partial faith. Are you feeling me here? Like he gets it on an intellectual level. He's seen the signs, and so something in him is stirred, but he really only has a partial faith, a partial trust, a partial belief in Jesus. And of course, we all stand there from time to time not being able to see the kingdom of God. The other thing I think to hold before us is the notion of conversion. Actually, it, when you, if you think of conversion from its like Latin roots, it actually means something like first step. So first step in what's meant to be a long journey of followership of Jesus. And often the way, uh, again for us as American evangelicals, the way we've conceived of this is something like this apologetics, you know, argument, logic. And then at some point there's a line and someone crosses that line and we say they're converted. So, you know, game over. They're in. And see, in that notion, conversion is a finish line. But conversion properly thought of is not a finish line. It's a starting line. Uh, It's it's the first step in what's meant to be a lifelong spiritual journey of transformation that actually enables us to enter another world or another reality and to be fitted into its environment. Let me say that again, this is hugely important. What conversion actually is, is the first step of a process, a process which is meant to transform us, that it enables us to to see and enter a different reality. Right, You heard the gospel passage read, you can't see, you can't enter, you can't receive. And so what conversion is meant to do is to help us to see and therefore enter another reality and be fitted for it. That's what this whole business of transformation is all about, to be able to be fitted to this new environment. This is what Paul meant as he discussed uh, conversion in Titus. Notice the past tense, At one, if you want to look at your bulletin. Notice these past tense words. At one time, so in the past, we too were foolish. We were disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures, which is another way of saying ill-fitted for the kingdom of God. I should say here that when the text says, as Beth read that unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. That isn't something like taking a trip to Saudi Arabia and being able to see skyscrapers of the kingdom. Or like when Debbie and I were really young, we lived in Wheeling, West Virginia. And if you drove to Pittsburgh, which is about an hour away, you would drive to Pittsburgh uh, on 279. And there was a tunnel on 279. And as you go through this tunnel, especially at night, it's amazing. The city of Pittsburgh is just right there in front of you lit up. The old Three Rivers Stadium was there and, you know, the skyline of Pittsburgh. It was amazing. That's not what's being said here. It cannot be what's being said here. Why? Because the kingdom of God is God's rule and reign. It's the the expression of his being. It's the spaces and places in which what God wants done is done, where his reign is actually made manifest. And so what Jesus is saying is, unless you're born again, you can't see that. You can't enter that. That's a realm. That's a different kind of reality that you have to be fitted for. And so what Paul's saying is, we used to live lives that were ill-fitted for that. But look at the next verse. But... When the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, which is to say he delivered us from our stuckness in this other reality, and through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, he began to fit us for this new reality. Something happened in my life two or three weeks ago, a great loss. And I think that's what sparked this, but I can't be sure, actually. But all I know is my habit is that like tonight, sometime tonight before I go to bed, I'll start looking at John 4 and and my habit is I just kind of look at these texts all week and I sit with them and sometimes I'm studying, sometimes I'm just thinking, but I just kind of sit with these texts all week. And all week this week, I realized, I think I want to be born again more right now than I wanted it 37 years ago. I didn't even think I wanted it 37 years ago. There was just this guy on the baseball team that kept bugging me to go to church with him and nobody had told me if you get around greg laurie you're likely to get converted and so i didn't know i just wanted to get this kid off my back he was driving me crazy so i remember the day i said to debbie god let's just go to church what could happen i mean like how bad could it be you know let's just go maybe this guy will shut up and leave me alone And so we did. We went to church. It was a rainy Sunday night. There were hundreds of teenagers like us standing in the rain to get into this little building in Riverside, California. I wasn't looking for conversion. But today, as I stand here this morning, I think I want to be born again more than I ever have. I am just like captured by Jesus who said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, come follow me, for, that's this interesting little word in the Greek text, gar, you don't need to know that, what you need to know is, it's a very strong logical connective, in the Greek, Koine Greek, gar, very strong, large, large connective, so Jesus says, come follow me, because if you don't, my dad's really ticked, and you're all in big trouble. Uh, Come follow me because, you know, watch these amazing things I do, yo. Or, you know, come follow me or you're going to, you know, spend the rest of your life in hell. No, it's come follow me for I am gentle and humble in heart. I want to be born again into that reality, standing here today more than I ever have. No best-selling book, I wouldn't trade that for a best-selling book. I wouldn't trade it for being some sort of Christian celebrity. Nothing I can think of would be more important than to be able to say to you, to my family, to my friends, to my coworkers, follow me into this new reality. For I am learning to be gentle and humble in heart. And there is a power in that that surpasses how many people are following you on Twitter. There is a a power in that. There's a new reality that we can be fitted for that's way greater than how many friends we have on Facebook. I mean, I remember the day Joe, wherever he went, called me and said, hey, sorry, Todd, you got, you know, more than 5,000 followers on Facebook. Now you have to become a public person. Like, yeah, 5,000 of my best friends. You know, it, hasn't ever, it didn't do a thing for my life. It hasn't done a thing for my life. I barely noted it and was off doing the next thing. But what really matters is us being fit for this new reality that we not only can live in today, but will live in for the rest of our life. And this is what these passages are holding before us with these words of washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit and being uh, born again. That's what they're holding before us. And they don't invite us into this process in order to earn anything, of course, but simply to cooperate with the grace and power of the God who reached out and touched us, the God who reached out and died for us, as the passage said, who was patient, at least with me, while I was deliberately running the other way the God who still says to me, come to me, trust me, I mean you no harm. You know, if there's not someone in this room, and likely there is, but if there's not someone in this room, there's somebody who you know who they can't even get past that first thing, that God means you no harm. Because the first step in a process implies that we don't know where the rest of the process goes. We're not quite sure where the rest of this journey might take us. And so often the first step is to just really get it somewhere deep within us that we can trust God, that He's gentle and humble of heart, and that it's in that we can take the risk of dying to our old self, of being born again, and of trusting that we can have a new beginning. See, this really is the great good news. All eyes, please. This is the great good news. You don't have to stay as you are. You can be born again. You can be washed and renewed and actually become a new person who's fit for God and his kingdom. We can have a new birth, another chance at life that we've messed up. And you know, that was true when I first said the sinner's prayer that night in January 1976 and it still can be true to us this morning that we can still bring our messed up lives maybe the one you messed up last night or maybe the one that you messed up sometime this week where you treated somebody at work unfairly or something the great good news is, is that we can bring that kind of stuff to God and that we can be born again we can be changed But here's, I think, the challenge that these moments of honest self reflection, the moments especially that reveal how far we are from our spiritual growth, our spiritual goals, can lead to the kind of hopelessness that we were hearing in the psalmist this morning. It can sometimes feel overwhelmed by the darkness that we find in us, or dark or fear. It's like too hard to bear. It's painful to realize that we're tempted to love the darkness. It's painful to realize that we have moments where we are tempted to literally love money or power or prestige or substances or entertainment or sexual fulfillment or whatever it is. And then I have to say in my life, if I'm just being honest, if I'm just keeping it real, just an observation, no judgment. You know what I've seen happen over and over and over again, not only to people, but to whole churches and perhaps the largest part of the church is that we then create theologies fit the darkness we then start finding little bits of scripture that tell us well you probably shouldn't hope for too much change in this life and that you know the focus here isn't about who you are and how you behave and think and feel the focus here is on the grace of God to forgive you know where you are true enough as far as it goes But we're still left with all these notions of being different, of being fitted for this kingdom and how it's not only good for us making us human as God intended, but as we become human as God intended, it's actually good for others. See, this is what I so crave. God, would you help me be the kind of person that when people experienced me, experienced me, they would be glad that you created. And that they would be glad that you created me. That'll shut Bill Maher up. About a hundred million Americans who say they're born again, living lives that when people saw their lives, they said, God, I'm glad you're a creator, God. And I'm glad you created these Christians. And how they are a light to another reality, a genuine hope. And again, what Nicodemus stands for here in this passage, especially for people like us, is that so often, at least in the American Christians that I've known, look for other things to put our confidence in. Sometimes it's work or hobbies or entertainment or whatever. And what these passages are teaching us is that this is the disease we all carry in our genes. And this is why, as we read in the gospel this morning, we always have to look up to and place our confidence in this Son hanging on the tree who indeed did take the full force of all the world's sin and darkness and pain And what John is trying to tell us in his John-like, you know, mysterious sort of way, is that if you'll look on Jesus, if you'll look up to Jesus the way Israel looked up to the serpent on the tree, that in such contemplation and faith, you'll be healed, you'll be changed, you'll find life. And not only life, a different kind of transformed life in this life, but life, life, and life to come in eternal life. But again, as a longtime pastor, I know how this works. We often feel as if we can barely stay one step ahead of a kind of spiritual depression or hopelessness that just feels like it's just right around the corner. Will I always be like this? Will I ever stop hating? Will I ever stop lying? Will I ever stop, you know, manipulating because I'm fearful of how something might turn out? And again, we're back to the Psalmist. Why, my soul, are you so downcast? But put your hope in God. And so let's consider again, just in these last couple moments, the gospel reading. This one that we've heard over and over and over again, you know, John three sixteen, and just kind of reconsider it. As a call for faith, as a call to look up and trust, to gaze on and rely, to contemplate with confidence. And of course... The accent, and this is what from the reformers all the way down to popular Christianity today is trying to say, and it's true. Of course, what's crucial here is not our faith. It's the object of our faith. It's not our faith that saves us. It's not our faith that does anything. It's the object of our faith who is gentle and humble in heart and will lead us through his character into a new reality in which our character is changed. So of course, the accent is always on Jesus, his love, his capacity. That's what makes it rational to follow him, right? If the object of our faith, I believe I have enough gas to get to work, and we're wrong about the object, the actual liquid content in our gas tank, well, then our faith makes no difference because the object of our faith doesn't have the power or capacity to do what we thought it could. But the accent here is on Jesus, our master, in this life and the eternal destiny that he brings us. So the kind of bottom line for John is that this leaves a choice. And again, we tend to think of this in terms of evangelism, but what if we thought about it, assuming that most of you in this room are converted, and if not, then hear this as somebody who's not converted and and do, and do what you would and should with it. Um, but assuming that most of you are, the kind of the bottom line for John here is, this business if you look in your gospel reading, that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And this gets right to the core of, of Nicodemus' partial faith and the core of his misunderstanding because what was the real dynamic of the Pharisees is that they were focused on not doing anything wrong. Do you hear that? They're focused on not doing anything that would bring condemnation. And this is what explains all their microscopic interpretations of Moses. Take a Sabbath, Moses said. They said, can't walk farther than three eighths of a mile. And on and on they went with these microscopic little interpretations, but they forgot that what was really going on is that they were chosen to be God's people for a positive purpose, not merely to avoid sin through their own religious rules, but to actually follow God as his people. And so then Jesus says, and this is the judgment then. Light has come into the world, this new reality. But people have loved their present reality. They love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Now, in my view, in my lifetime, many, if not most, of the sort of popular religious moralists of our days have this backwards, especially when it comes to things like cultural trends. What you hear a lot these days is that cultural trends like abortion or war or rampant drug use or sexual experimentation its like ah these things are going to bring the judgment of god you know we better make sure america stops these things it's going to bring the judgment of god upon us we'll try this on for size what if those things are the judgment of god Not that they will bring the judgment. But they are presently the judgment of a whole culture, what we call the Western world, who actually wants nothing to do with him. Not really. They really have no intention of actually following him. I mean, we might have plaques we hang on our kitchen walls with religious sayings. But there's no real intention of actually being a follower of him. What if Paul's right? Remember that famous passage in Roman 1 from the message where Paul says, these people who aren't following God, they trivialize themselves into silliness and confusion so that there was neither sense nor direction left in their lives. And so God said, in effect, if that's what you want, that's what you'll get. And it wasn't long before they were living in a pig pen smeared with filth, filthy inside and out. And that, my dear friends, ought to send a shiver down our spines. All right, determined to have whatever you want, no matter what it costs the rest of the world? Well, I guess if that's in your intention, and finally you won't listen to me, then okay. Determined to just have your way, any old way, sexually? If that's your determination, okay. But then there stands Jesus. And he says, but if you wanna enter this other reality, if you wanna like follow somebody who sees something that you don't see and you wanna be able to enter into the reality that he sees, then he says, come follow me. Lay down all of your approach to religion. If you're tired and worn out and burned out in religion, come follow me, gar, for I am humble and gentle in heart. And you can trust me that if you follow me, it will be for your good. For God so loves the world that he continues to give his son to whoever would want to follow him into a life that's not marked by perishing, but a life that is marked by the eternal life in which God now presently lives. That is the great good news. That is the great invitation for all of you in this room, whether you're taking the first step or the 150th step, that's the invitation that our readings put before us this morning, amen.